There are many things in life that we approach with both anticipation and dread. We anticipate a new job with higher pay, but dread the longer hours and added responsibilities. We can't wait to settle into a new home, but hate packing and moving. We look forward to better health, but dread the triple bypass surgery. We're excited about the birth of a baby, but not looking forward to the labor needed to get it here. We realize that the old axiom, no pain, no gain, is often true. But no one wants the pain. Neither did our Lord. He did not want to die. He didn't want to suffer. He would have liked to have avoided the cross. I know we're all familiar with Gethsemane and the agony our Lord experienced there, how while praying fervently, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. But that wasn't the first time he agonized over the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. A day or two earlier, during the last week of his life, after indicating that he was going to have to die like a grain of wheat in order to bear fruit, Jesus expressed ambivalent feelings about what lay ahead. In John, the first part of chapter 12, verse 27, we read, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He was torn. He was troubled in his soul. He didn't even know what to say or how to pray. Now that reassures me about struggles in prayer. I think we've all found ourselves wanting to pray but not knowing how to pray about a particular situation. I'm encouraged by the fact that even the Son of God had moments when he did not know how to to pray. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. We really can't tell if this is a question or a plea. He may have been actually praying, Father, save me from this hour. You know, John doesn't tell us about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. Of course, the next words out of his mouth were yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. But he did ask for the cup to be removed. He did not want to go to the cross. And he may have actually been asking his father to save him from the cross. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Or he may have been simply posing a hypothetical question. Should I say this, Father? Is it okay if I ask to be saved from this hour? He may have wanted to ask it, but wasn't sure if he should, because he knew 
It could not be avoided. The bottom line was he did not want to go to the cross, but he knew he had to. He couldn't accomplish what he had come to do if he shrank from it. He knew this hour was the hour of purpose. So he continues in verse 27, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus knew what he had to do. He knew why he had come to earth. He had come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He had come to pay the penalty for our sins. And he knew that if he didn't pay for our sins, we would have to pay for them eternally. As God, he could die and rise again. If we had to pay the penalty for our sins, which is death, that would be the end of us. We would be cut off from our creator forever. We are not able to bring ourselves back to life, even into a spiritual realm. So Jesus knew what he had to do. It had been planned from the very beginning. Jesus knew what it would cost him when he revealed the plan to save us in the Garden of Eden. He would have to suffer at the hands of the serpent before he could crush him. He had set the program in motion, and it was too late to stop it. You know, in some respects, it's like having a baby. You can't choose to stop midterm, at least not morally. Once the baby is on the way, you can't back out. As the delivery date gets closer and you begin to realize why they call it labor, it's too late. You can't avoid it. Now that illustration does break down a bit because the pain can be lessened by the blessed epidural. But you can't avoid the moment toward which you have been moving for nine months. And you really don't want to. Because that feared moment is also going to be your hour of glory. Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. How does a son bring glory to his father? By saying nice things? By declaring his dad to be the greatest? I'm sure a dad wouldn't mind hearing such, but what really makes a dad shine is a son or a daughter doing something that makes him proud. And that's why parents and grandparents get so excited at sporting events. You know, I don't know all the rules, obviously, and I don't always know what's happening in a football game. But I certainly loved hearing Carter's name over the loudspeaker five times after five tackles in a row a week ago. And even though I really don't like sitting in bleachers, 
I'm really looking forward to Levi and Carter's soon-to-be-made baskets and Anna's upcoming goals. You know, parents and grandparents love it when their kids do well, in part because it makes them look so good. It brings them glory. And, of course, everyone knows the Hunley kids got their love for sports and their athletic ability from their grandpa, Winterborg. <laughs> anyway, that's what Jesus wanted to do here. He wanted to make his father look good. Now, obviously, God is good. But Jesus wanted men to see it. And they could really see it through him if he would do as they had planned. So when he said, Father, glorify thy name, he was saying, help me do what needs to be done. Help me do what will make you look good, what will reveal your amazing love and character. And isn't that what best brings glory to God today? You know, it's, it's not building beautiful cathedrals or just saying or singing nice things about him, so much as it is demonstrating his love and his character. And that's what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to glorify his Father's name. So he prayed, Father, glorify thy name. And like a father shouting, that's my boy, from the stands, God spoke from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God was verbally affirming that Jesus had already brought him glory and that he would continue doing so. God was affirming that Jesus was headed in the right direction. He was making the right decisions. His son wasn't going to give him a bad name. The hour had come for the father to be glorified as never before, and Jesus was going to bring him that glory. It was indeed the hour of glory, but it was also the hour of judgment. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now, God spoke audibly on three occasions during Jesus' ministry. At his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now he speaks again. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Did anyone other than Jesus really hear what God was saying? The text isn't clear. Some would suggest they didn't, that they only heard a loud sound coming from the sky. But apparently John heard it and he understood it. And Jesus said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. So I tend to believe it was possible 
to understand what was said. You know, Peter, James, and John understood what God said on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I see no reason to believe those with Jesus on this occasion couldn't understand the voice of God. Maybe the multitude just didn't want to hear what they had heard. After all, who would really want to hear the thundering voice of the Almighty? Many who heard it quickly dismissed it as thunder. And even those who were willing to acknowledge it was more than thunder didn't want to admit it was God. They suggested it was an angel talking to Jesus, not to them. And obviously the voice did come for Jesus' sake. When he said it didn't come for his sake, he was merely indicating that it didn't come for his sake alone. God was letting everyone know that what Jesus was about to do would bring glory to his name. Now, they wouldn't understand it until later, but Jesus was doing the Father's will. And God spoke to affirm it for Jesus' sake and for our sake as well. There could no longer be any doubt as to the Father's will. And indeed, God has spoken. And if we ignore what he has said, we bring judgment upon ourselves. But if we hear his voice, if we believe what he has to say, if we accept the sacrifice of his son, the hour of judgment becomes the hour of victory because Satan's hold over us is broken. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Now, who is the ruler of this world? Well, it's the same one Paul called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Satan, Satan is the ruler of this world, or at least he was. He still rules in the hearts of most men and in that sense remains the ruler of this world. But he lost his right to condemn us when Jesus surrendered to the Father's will. At least he lost the right to condemn those who would accept what Jesus did for them on the cross. And in that regard, the ruler of this world has been cast out. The Apostle John pictured this for us in Revelation 12. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the Lamb that defeated Satan. 
By going to the cross, Jesus gave the powers of hell a fatal blow. And he fought the battle for us. He became what God had promised through Isaiah. God sent to his people a savior and a champion. You know, we tend to think of a champion as someone who has won an athletic event. But originally it referred to someone who fought on behalf of someone else and won a victory for them. And in defeating Satan, Jesus became our champion. The cross was Jesus our of victory, even though it was also his hour of death. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. You know, Jesus had already spoken of the need to be lifted up. In John 3.14, we read, As Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in John 8.28, he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Usually the phrase, to lift up, is used in the sense of exalting someone. But Jesus had something else in mind. Jesus was talking about his death. Jesus would be lifted up, literally, through the crucifixion. And through it, he would draw all men to himself. Now that does not mean all men will be saved, because some will resist the draw of the cross. But its appeal will be universal. Jesus was making it clear that men from every nation would be drawn to a crucified Savior, that the love demonstrated on Calvary would be understood by every culture on earth. Through his sacrificial death, the Son of God would establish a worldwide, ever-expanding spiritual kingdom a kingdom that would be established here on earth, but a kingdom that would find its consummation when Christ returns and brings with him a new heaven and a new earth. Through the son's submission to his father's will, through his death on a cross, both the father and the son were glorified. And as Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father, so we too must surrender to his will if he is to be glorified through us. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to pray, Father, glorify thy name through me. If we are, we must surrender to his will 
as did his son.